Thank you for joining IRW Coffee Break. This is a podcast series hosted by KPMG IRW specialists within the Washington National Tax Practice to discuss current topics in the field of information reporting and withholding. Every episode will discuss a discrete area of interest in a brief segment. So we invite you to grab a cup of coffee or just get comfortable while we explore all things IRW. Hi, I'm Danielle Nishida, and I'm joined today by Lori Hatton Boyd. We're discussing the final QI agreement that was just released in RevProc 2022-43. With the publicly traded partnership rules going into effect and the former QI agreement expiring come 2023, we are getting this final agreement just in the nick of time. And there isn't a lot of time to review this agreement before the January 1st date that it goes into effect. So we are going to go over some of the highlights with you to help in your reading. As a matter of background, QIs have obligations as withholding agents when acting as a nominee with respect to distributions paid to a foreign partner under 1446A and when making payments with respect to transfers of partnership interests for 1446F purposes. Accordingly, the QI agreement is now updated to allow a qualified intermediary to act as a qualified intermediary with respect to 1446A distributions and 1446F transactions. In our prior podcast, we discussed the proposed changes to the QI agreement addressed in Notice 2022-23, and the final agreement adopts many of these proposed rules addressed in that notice with a couple of really important modifications. The final agreement also contains other general updates to QI rules, as well as some updates to the Qualified Derivative Dealer rules, or QDD rules. So to get us started, let's start with a question everyone's been asking. Lori, does this agreement provide for transitional relief at all, given that we're getting this notice in mid-December of 2022? Yeah, that, that is the million dollar question. And the answer is no, not a word. I was actually very surprised about that. I actually thought that IRS was going to follow that same good faith effort that they did with the 871M withholding rules, but we're not seeing anything in this agreement regarding any type of transition relief. It's interesting because the industry has repeatedly told the IRS it would take around 18 months to implement these types of changes because they're significant changes. You know, the QI had never been subjected to to withholding under 1446 before. And somebody pointed out to me the other day that this advanced release of the RevProc was actually just 18 days before it goes live. So I'm still expecting to see some other type of guidance relief that's going to provide some transition relief here because clearly they can't comply in this short time period. And they may take the view that they've provided a lot of these rules in the prior notice. But, you know, a couple of things to that point. One, that's just proposed rules. That's not the final rules. And they made substantial changes in this round. So it's not like you can really plan based on those proposed rules. And that notice was only received several months ago. It wasn't like we've had that and been sitting on it for a substantial period of time where people could have really made a lot of changes to cut into that 18-month period. So I'm with you. I I hope we see something regarding transitional relief, but that was incredibly disappointing. I agree. On the positive side, a good change we're seeing in this final set of rules is that the final agreement removes the outright requirement that documentation collected by the QI for 1446F purposes or 1446A purposes contain a U.S. TIN. Treasury and IRS took into account the concerns expressed that QIs will have difficulty requiring U.S. TINs from all account holders, particularly when these account holders may not have needed a U.S. TIN prior to obtaining the partnership interest. 
And a QI that did not get that TIN on the forms would have potentially been at risk of being in default of their agreement if they had too many of these scenarios. And so taking into account all of those concerns, the final agreement now provides that the QI may accept documentation from account holders receiving publicly traded partnership distributions or amounts realized under 1446F without a U.S. TIN, provided that the QI solicits the TIN upon collecting the documentation and then continues to solicit the TIN for each of the following two years. The U.S. TIN will still be required in order to apply a reduced rate of withholding under 1446 ARF based on the account holder's status, but as long as the QI has applied the solicitation requirements, the QI would be considered to have applied its best efforts and will not be treated as being in default of its agreement. So the stress of having the U.S. TIN is still there from a withholding perspective, but at least QIs are not going to be out of compliance when their account holders can't obtain the TINs in time. This is also a significant change when considering the requirement that a disclosing QI was required to pass a valid documentation for all account holders receiving the payment, which would have then included that U.S. TIN for each account holder. And that would have prevented a QI from acting as a disclosing QI if even one account holder for that payment didn't have a U.S. TIN. Now, at least, this U.S. TIN is not required, and that disclosing QI would be able to pass up the documentation without the TIN. However, while this provides some relief to disclosing QIs, it does not appear that we're seeing the relief that the industry had hoped for in those disclosing QI roles. Yeah, and what's interesting with that is they actually did the opposite of what I thought they were going to do. I was expecting to have some transitional relief for the U.S. TIN rule so that non-U.S. persons that were investing into PTPs had time to go apply and receive a U.S. TIN. But then I thought they would get rid of this all or nothing concept for the disclosing QI. And instead, they had permanent relief on the U.S. TIN, but retained that all or nothing concept for the disclosing QI. Which goes to your point earlier, Danielle, about that with the proposed rules, that you really couldn't start planning and implementing this because those that did, that were thinking that that's exactly what was going to happen and that they were going to go the NQI route um, with respect to account holders where they couldn't get the valid documentation. And, and now everything that they had done working towards that compliance has been undermined by the way these final rules came out. So as we said, the disclosing QI, it is an all or nothing. The preamble is very clear that this is intentional because they do not want a disclosing QI to act as an NQI with respect to any of the account holders that are receiving amounts from publicly traded partnerships. So even if, again, like you said, if they have the W-8 without the 10, that's okay now. But again, they have to act as disclosing for all. One thing that it doesn't cover is if the QI just doesn't have valid documentation at all. So irrespective of the 10 issue, let's say they had a W-8 that had expired, would they still act as the disclosing QI and the, the presumption rules applied? I presume that will be the answer. But again, it's it's not crystal clear in the, the language in the agreement. And, you know, in addition to the lack of transition relief, I think this was one of the more disappointing things, because if there's one thing that got commented on repeatedly, it was this all or nothing disclosing QI approach. And there never seemed to be a really good reason for why it had to be an all or nothing approach. And as you said, it doesn't address what you do if you're disclosing QI that passes up documentation that's not valid. If it's required that you have the valid documentation in order to be a disclosing QI, you may not know whether the upstream withholding agent or broker is going to regard your documentation as valid. You may think it's valid and you're not going to find out until you get that 1042S that you weren't expecting that is issued to you that you now are not being treated as a disclosing QI and you have to do the reporting. Yeah, that's a that's a valid point. 
the final thing with respect to disclosing QI is, is that the agreement just confirmed that this also can apply for any U.S. account holders. There was nothing intentional with that not being in the proposed rules. They, they just didn't make it in there, so it wasn't clear. And then the final QI agreement also provided some um, clarifications regarding 6031 nominee reporting. So a QI that does not act as a disclosing QI with respect to a publicly traded partnership distribution is required to provide a nominee statement that provides the partner with the information that would have been contained in the K-1 issued by the partnership. So in other words, since the QI acting as a nominee had not passed up sufficient information to the partnership to enable the partnership to issue the K-1 to the partner, the partnership will issue the K-1 to the QI instead, and then the QI will then have the obligation to provide that information to the partners. The final agreement confirms that the QI in this instance may simply pass on the K-1 that it received from the partnership to the partners as long as it provides the necessary allocation information with respect to each partner. So the QI doesn't have to create its own statement. It can just pass on what it's received along with allocation details. And, and I think that's a... a really useful provision in this agreement. And the only reason we know historically 1446 was not covered by the agreement, but we know with respect to distributions, some QIs were acting as QIs and and that's exactly what they were doing is giving a copy of the K-1 and the percentage allocation. So those that were doing that already have a process in place for that. So I think that's helpful. And then in addition, with respect to the disclosing QIs, The disclosing QI will now not be required to pass up a disclosure typically required under 6031 to the QI's nominee for the payment when the QI's nominee maintains fully segregated and disclosed accounts for the disclosing QI's account holders that has the information necessary for the PTP to issue the statement, i.e. the K-1. And so in other words, where the disclosing QI would normally have to pass up specific information upstream they're eliminating that requirement where that information is really already contained by that upstream nominee. And then the final agreement also updates the definition of a nominee to mean any entity that holds a publicly traded partnership interest directly or indirectly for another person, which is just aligning the definition with the Section 6031 definition. And then we also saw a bunch of changes with respect to the required reviews and certifications that a QI must make. Lori, do you want to walk us through the ones required for 1446A and F purposes? Yeah, sure. So as you can imagine, you know, they've included as part of the review that internal or external compliance review steps to ensure that the QI is compliant with respect to its documentation, withholding and reporting on 1446 A and F payments. What they did that's most notable was they actually changed the sampling. So before there was the three different stratum, the direct non-US, the direct US, and indirect, and then you would apply the formula if you're using the safe harbor method in the agreement, and the maximum would be 321 accounts. Sometimes it could be a little bit more than that, but just by a few, depending on how the stratums were diversified. But here we now have a new concept of a certainty stratum, and that's going to be the top 30 of account holders that are receiving these payments that are subjected to 1446A and F. And that certainty stratum are going to be taken out prior to putting together the population that's going to be subjected to the sampling. So now where we've got these payments, if it's a QI with any type of volume, we're going to be quite a bit over that prior maximum of 321 accounts. And for purposes of the withholding spot check, which was always 30 accounts maximum in each of the stratum, the agreement makes clear that any account that's in a certainty stratum for the documentation purposes 
all of the accounts in that certainty stratum must also be reviewed for purposes of the withholding spot check. So that's also going to substantially increase the number of accounts that are reviewed for withholding purposes. And then they also provided additional information regarding QDD good faith reviews and their filing requirements. The final agreement continues to reserve on the factual information that must be reported for QDD's periodic certification when the transition period ends and the details regarding sampling of QDD accounts. That isn't going into effect in 2023, so they've indicated that the plan is that any additional changes to the QDD rules and all of these additional details will be provided in a later rider to the agreement. The agreement also incorporated existing QDD rules that were contained in the notices and FAQs already in existence, including things like the extension of the QSL rules and the good faith transition period until 2025. So they're just putting all of that into the notice, but there were not any substantial changes to those rules. The agreement clarifies that while QDDs are not permitted to file for waivers of periodic reviews, this limitation does not apply during the transitional period prior to 2025, provided that the QI otherwise meets the waiver requirements. And that makes sense because there are no periodic reviews from a QDD perspective, so you're just following the QI rules there. And then the filing requirements for QDDs were amended to clarify that in addition to the Form 1042 that must be filed by all QDDs, QDD corporations should file either an 1120 for U.S. corporations or an 1120F for foreign corporations, and QDD partnerships should file a 1065, which was a clarification we did not have previously. And they provide a little more detail about how it will work for QDD partnerships. So a QDD partnership will be required to provide information equivalent to the Schedule Q that would be attached to the 1120F. They don't actually create a Schedule Q for the 1065, but they're instructing the QDD partnerships to simply provide the information that would be contained on that Schedule Q. So one thing I might be curious about is whether you could just take the Schedule Q that would otherwise be attached to the 1120F or to the 1042 and attach that to your 1065. It seems like that should work, but they didn't clarify that. And then the other change for QDD partnerships is rather than just self-reporting and paying the QDD tax liability in the way that a corporation would, it appears that QDD partnerships will be passing through the tax obligation through to the partners and reporting the tax paid to the partners. So specifically, QDD partnerships will be required to issue forms 1042S allocating the QDDs QDD tax liability to each non-U.S. partner. U.S. financial institutions and U.S. partners of QDD partnerships are also going to be required to pay any U.S. taxes owed with respect to the QDD's activities on their own returns. Yeah, and then with respect to the reviews, we had quite a few just miscellaneous changes. The first three here really seem to be about transparency. It would seem that that QI team wants a lot more insight as to what's going on with respect to these reviews. So the first one is that now the review reports that are issued to the responsible officer must actually be provided to the IRS as part of the responsible officer certification. So kind of going back to those QI audits of yesteryear where that was required. We now have a new Appendix 3 to the agreement, and that's a detailed reporting reconciliation. So in addition to the reconciliation of the forms 1042S issued to the QI and by the QI, we now have a reconciliation between the form 1042 and the forms 1042S that the QI is issuing to make sure that the lines on the 1042 for the income and the various withholding or withholding upstream match up to the appropriate boxes on the form 1042S. And that will also be required to be submitted as part of that responsible officer certification. 
And then the, the third issue with respect to this additional transparency relates to the sampling. So before you would just certify whether you used the safe harbor formula for sampling in the QI agreement or whether you had some other agreed upon sampling method with the IRS. And now when you're using the safe harbor method, that formula in the agreement, you actually have to provide the population information. So the number of accounts broken out by stratum so that the IRS can actually double check to make sure that you've done the sampling correctly. So I thought that was interesting. Then just some other issues with respect to the reviews. The agreement makes clear that if a QI is terminating in the third year, so remember the certification period is a three-year period. So if the QI is terminating its agreement in that third year, aside from just having to do that final certification that's required for any QI that's terminating, it actually has to conduct a review for the first or second year, whichever it chooses. And then there was also some additional language when there is a merger of two QIs that for purposes of that review, they can combine the acquired QI's accounts into the remaining QI. So it's just one review, including both. But then there's that certainty stratum that I talked about earlier with respect to the 1446A and F review. And that is the 15 top dollar accounts in each of the stratum from the acquired QI have to be reviewed. And again, that's in addition to the normal sampling of the population of all of the accounts. So that's a new requirement in that agreement. And then the last thing with respect to the reviews and the information provided to the IRS, the updated agreement made clear that uh, the IRS wants to see the pre-cure underwithholding and the post-cure underwithholding. They made clear that where they are going to project an underwithholding based on the remaining liability, that the QI will get 60 days additional time to cure after they have proposed an assessment. And it also makes clear that overwithholding will not be projectable, which we would expect, although it does say if the overwithholding is less than the underwithholding, for purposes of determining that ultimate projected liability, that the projected overwithholding can offset the projected underwithholding as long as the QI is willing to enter into a closing agreement with the IRS uh, that makes clear it will not be seeking a refund for that overwithholding. So that was new, and that's a positive change. And then we also just had a few general updates to the QI agreement that apply to all QIs. I think the most notable of these are some of the reporting updates. The final agreement modifies the LOB reporting requirements to now only require that LOB codes be provided on recipient-specific forms 1042S and not on pooled reporting. That's a really positive change because otherwise the QI would have had to break up the reporting pools by LOB type, which would have decreased the benefit of doing pooled reporting. The final agreement also addressed issues related to the requirement to furnish recipient-specific forms 1042S upon request when the QI is not employing the collective refund process. So this requirement created problems for QIs previously because the QI appeared to have an obligation to issue a form 1042S whenever a recipient requested it, no matter how far back the original return was issued. And so a recipient can request it five, 10 years in the future, and now the QI has to issue the 1042S and go back continually to update its reporting for back years, which was just not a practical process. So the final agreement limits the QI's obligation to provide a recipient-specific form 1042S generally to an account holder that makes the written request within two calendar years following the year of payment. And this seems to be a calendar year and deadline. 
So the year of payment plus two full calendar years, and then the deadline would be December 31st of that second year. However, if the QI files a Form 1042-S to report a payment subject to 1446-A or 1446-F to an account holder that has requested recipient-specific Form 1042-S for that same calendar year, now the account holder has three years following the year of payment to make this request rather than two years. And the IRS had specified that this is because that recipient is actually going to need that 1042-S in order to do its return that it's required to file. And then finally, the agreement also includes a requirement added to the 1042-S instructions that we discussed previously, that a QI making a payment to a disclosing QI is also required to provide a copy of the 1042-S to the disclosing QI, in addition to the copies that are already going to be provided to the account holders of the disclosing QI. And that's just so that the disclosing QI sees how the reporting is being done and can verify that the upstream broker or withholding agent truly did treat them as a disclosing QI and did the reporting that was required. And that's how the disclosing QI is going to know that it doesn't have any further reporting obligations. And then the final change that I thought was noteworthy is the agreement specifies that the process for sending notices by the QI team to the QI or from the QI back to the QI team would now include the option to send the notices by secured email. So previously everything had to be snail mailed. Now you have the option to do it by certified mail or by a secured email. This is a really welcome change because there have been substantial problems with mailings of notices, but this only impacts notices sent by the QI team and does not impact notices sent from the service centers, such as penalty notices. And we are constantly hearing reports of withholding agents not receiving notices from the IRS in a timely manner, or in some places not receiving them at all, and which is making it impossible for them to respond in the periods required. So hopefully this is just a first step towards moving to a secured email process that they will hopefully at some point expand out in all cases to notices from the service centers. An alternate to this approach that I think they should be considering is whether they could just have a portal similar to the FATCA portal, where all communications are relayed that way when the withholding agent or QI voluntarily sets up the process. And so that that withholding agent or QI would agree to receive communications through this secured portal. And then these communications would be done instantaneously. It is something we've raised with them. And, you know, we hope that the government's going to do something to make these communications back and forth between the IRS and withholding agents a lot simpler. But for now, all we've got is the secured email sent by the QI team. It is a very positive step, though. Yeah, I agree with that, Danielle. And I think you know, I'm looking at it as the first positive step. In in the QI portal itself, the QI can upload documents to the IRS. So it would be fantastic if they could use that same portal to have communications going the other way. Because to your point, we have QIs all the time that didn't receive notices. And then when they call and talk to somebody at the IRS, all they're told is that notices or letters had been sent to the QI, but they're not able to tell them at all what was contained in those notices or letters. And so, you know, if we had a new process like this, it, it would be really welcomed. And I think we've seen the FATCA portal be really successful. It's a method where a responsible officer can log in at any time, see all the notices issued, see any updates of what they need to do and communicate back and forth with the IRS that way, I, I think it would be really positive to see this expanded out to other withholding agents. 
And then just one final thing that I noticed in the agreement, it's clear that the IRS is now going to publish a list of qualified intermediaries with their QIEIN. I know this is something that had been requested before from the IRS. And unlike the GIN list, I think their counsel had informed them that that would not be permissible because they were tax ID numbers. And without consent, they would not be able to post such a list. And so this agreement makes clear that any new QI or any QI that's renewing for this agreement is required to consent to being published on that list with their name and QIEIN. So I kind of thought that was funny that, you know, you have to get consent, but then now the consent's required, but I understand that you don't have to act as a QI. So I see where they're coming from. And I think probably the overall scheme of things, it'll be better to have that list so that nobody has to worry about a QI certifying that they have entered into an agreement when they haven't, or if their agreement had been terminated and they were continuing to certify QI status. I think the question now is, are we going to expect to see a withholding agent requirement to actually validate those QI EINs against this list the way that you would with a FATCA GIN? Right. That's going to be interesting because, again, you get to rely on the certifications made unless you know or have reason to know. And yeah, certainly opens up the question, do I have reason to know if there's a published list that, you know, do I have to avail myself to it? Okay. And I, I think that covers the things that we thought were the most interesting updates in this agreement, but it certainly doesn't cover everything. So we wish you happy reading. And on behalf of the IRW Coffee Break team, we want to thank you for listening in to all our podcasts throughout the year. We had planned to do our annual year-end wrap-up, but because this QI agreement was released so quickly, we wanted to get this out at year-end because we knew QIs would have to address this immediately. So we will do a year-end special starting in January. Happy holidays, everyone. 